are you saved? That was, a, that was the question that Jerry Velker asked almost anything that breathed at my high school back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. <clears throat> Jerry was a holdover from the 1960s. He was a bona fide Jesus freak. He had shoulder length hair. He carried his Bible everywhere, even into PE class. And if, if Jerry could get you one-on-one, then he was going to ask you, hey, man, are you saved? And uh, Jerry went to my church and helped lead our youth group. And so eventually, one day in my junior year of high school, Jerry cornered me, and he asked me that question. He said, Larry, are you saved? And I told him, I'm in the process. That's, that's, what, that's what I told him. Because I wasn't even sure. We, we, our church had... Uh, um, had lost the gospel, the good news about Jesus, in the language of being nice people. It was there, but it was hidden, and I hadn't found it yet. So I didn't know what this being saved even meant. Um, Ed Stetzer, author Ed Stetzer, describes his experience this way. He says, the first person that I witnessed to as a new Christian was my dad. He said, 40 years ago, as a brand new Christian, I went home and I said, Dad, are you saved? And he answered, saved from what? And I said, I don't know, but you need to be. That's kind of how I felt when I was cornered by Jerry. But today, we're going to begin, as Daniel said, our study in the book of 1 Peter. If you'll open your Bibles there, that's where we'll be today, 1 Peter, the first chapter. And as you may have guessed, it's a book written by a man named Peter. Here's a brief summary of his life. We know that he was a fisherman on the northern shore of Galilee. He was called by Jesus to follow him. He became the leader of Jesus' apostolic band, and he was the first to perceive Jesus as the Messiah. He tried to walk on water. He denied Jesus, but he was restored by Jesus. He was a primary leader of the new church that formed on Pentecost, and along with the other disciples, he was beaten by the authorities. He received a magnificent vision about the unity of God's people. He was arrested, he was imprisoned, and he was miraculously released and he continued to have ministry as far as Rome. The rumors of church history are that he met his death at Rome by the hands of the Romans who crucified him. But he refused to die in the same position as his Lord, declaring he was unworthy, and so Peter demanded to be crucified upside down, and he was granted that that wish by the Romans in the circus that was Nero's reign in AD 67 or thereabouts. And so I suppose it's no surprise then that Peter, in this letter that he writes, has some hard words for us. Good but hard words about the suffering that waits for those who choose to follow Jesus. First Peter 4, for instance, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Just a couple verses later, he continues and says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So the interesting thing is that's not where he starts his letter with our suffering. Instead, he starts with our salvation, 
with describing what it means for us to be saved. Um, Because, as the letter unfolds, that's what makes the suffering worth it. As we start our study of 1 Peter, I thought it'd be helpful to get oriented by watching just the first minute or two of this overview of 1 Peter by the folks at the Bible Project. So watch up here. We'll watch the first little bit. The first letter of Peter. His name was Shimon, or Simon, when he first became a follower of Jesus, and he was part of the inner circle of the 12 disciples. When he made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus changed his name to Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which was later translated into Greek as Petros or Peter. Jesus promised that he would become a leader among the apostles to guide the Messianic community in Jerusalem through its earliest years. And that's what happened. Remember the early chapters of the book of Acts. Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel, however, and this letter was written decades into that mission in the wider Roman world. We discover at the conclusion of this letter that Peter is in Rome, which he calls Babylon, and we learned that while Peter commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Let's dive in. You'll just... All right. So let's dive in. Let's, uh, but let's pray first. Bow with me, please. Lord, have mercy upon us now in bringing us the good news of Jesus through the writings of Peter. Give us ears to hear. Give us undistracted minds and glad hearts to receive this and to cherish it as we ought. Help us, Lord, we pray. Amen. All right, so our letter of 1 Peter begins like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So so that's how you start a letter. That's a pretty awesome way to get a letter off to someone. And Peter writes as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not in the way we might use the term these days, we would say someone's an apostle. Maybe they're a missionary to an unreached land or something like that. They have an apostolic ministry. He's using it as one of the 12. One of the 12 apostles who traveled with Jesus, who were eyewitnesses of his life and ministry. And he's writing to people in places like Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Um, We know those places as modern-day Turkey. Okay, so he's writing to the churches in what we would call Turkey, and he calls them elect exiles. They are elect exiles. They're elect in that they are chosen and loved by God 
as his own people. Elsewhere, the Bible uses language that may be more familiar to us for this kind of thing. It's the language of adoption. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul writes, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So Peter says in verse one that they are elect and they are exiles. And likely that that implies that they were a poor and suffering people both by station in life and by their faith in Jesus. Professor Scott McKnight describes them this way. He says, they were not only castaways because of their social status, they were also castaways because of their commitment to Jesus, to a life of holiness, and to a group of similarly disenfranchised people, the church. We are then to see in this description a picture of hardworking, poor people who had no rights and no protection, but who, through the grace of God, had found life in Christ and fellowship in the family of God. So they're elect exiles. They are elect in that they are chosen and loved by God as a result of the workings of the entire trinity. Look, look at verse two with me again. They are elect, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Each member of the Trinity is involved in this election that they have. They're elect by the foreknowledge of the Father, a knowing beforehand that brings that which is foreknown to pass. They're elect by the sanctification of the Spirit, that is they're set apart as God's holy people. They're set apart for him. And they are elect for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, that is, for for the obedience of faith, as Paul would call it, and the cleansing of sin by Jesus' bloody cross work. These all have their focus here, as they're used, on our conversion, how we came to faith in Jesus, our entering into a right relationship with God. And it is a rescue that was undertaken for you by the whole Trinity, The whole Trinity got involved in rescuing you. Um, Joshua Ryan Butler helps us think about this mysterious way the Trinity works to rescue us. When he writes this, he says, um, say a family is trapped in a forest fire. So a helicopter team undertakes a rescue. One fireman flies the helicopter over the smoky blaze to coordinate the operation and see the big picture. A second fireman descends on a rope into the billowing smoke below to track down the family and to stand with them. And once he locates the family, he wraps the rope around them, attaching them to himself, and they are lifted up together from the blaze into safety. And in this rescue operation, he says, the first fireman looks like God the Father, who can see the whole field unclouded from above to sovereignly orchestrate the plan. The second fireman looks like God the Son, who descends into our world ablaze to find us, the human family, and identify with us most deeply in the darkness of the grave. And the Spirit, he says, is like the rope who mediates the presence of the Father to Jesus, even in his distance, and raises Jesus and the human family with him from sin, death, and the grave into the presence of the Father. Now, of course, he says, all analogies fall short. So does this one. The Spirit is a person. He's not a thing like a rope. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are not separate individuals, but one God sharing a divine nature and the essence as one being. But the point of his analogy is this. 
The rescue mission requires the interdependent action of all three persons in the Trinity. Each has a distinct and necessary role. And yet, zooming out, they're undertaking one united joint action, the rescue of the human family. Of you and me, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working together at the cross, one will, one nature, and a united joint action for the redemption of the world. The cross, Peter is saying, is a triune act. God, all, all that God is, all who he is, has engaged to rescue us. And then Peter says, be blessed with grace and peace, a Greek blessing and a Hebrew blessing, and then he says, multiply it on your life. May you be, have grace and peace multiplied. So, in Peter's understanding, that's what it means to be saved, to be chosen by God in love, by the redemptive work of God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. That's your salvation. But Peter is just getting started on this subject. So what follows in the next 10 verses um, has been called, in the, in the Bible Project video you saw, a song of praise for God's salvation. Um, and this is what makes all the suffering worth it. Right? All the hardship that come from following Jesus is so totally worth it because of what he's about to say. Now these next 10 sentences, or 10 verses rather, and if you're an English teacher, you need to buckle up for this, they're all one sentence. All 10 verses are one long, tangly, rich sentence that Peter wrote in his language. And the other interesting thing about it is there are no commands. There's, there's nothing for us to go do. Um, it's like Peter's holding up our salvation, salvation and just saying, look at that. Isn't that awesome? And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to say, awesome. That's what it is. So um, let's break this long, long, long sentence down a bit just for our English teachers, okay? Start in verses three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So Peter starts with this shout of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. It's, it's like he can't contain himself. He's so excited about what he's talking about that he can't hold it in. This is like, this is like Daniel Cresswell at the beginning of our worship service. If you're ever here on time, I have to tell the sound guys to dial him back just a little bit because he's going to yell at you when you come in because he's so excited. That's what Peter is doing here. He shouts, he starts with a shout of praise to God. And what follows is like this domino-like chain of events um, that describes our salvation. It starts with God's mercy, and it moves to being born again, and then it moves to a living hope which comes to us through Jesus' own resurrection, and then to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you and for me. And all of this is brought about by God's mercy and it's kept 
by God's power. Um, Peter is making something very, very clear here. Our salvation is secure. It's kept safe. Okay. I mean, he's struggling with language to describe that. It's, it's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading, unfading rather. It's kept by nothing less than the power of God himself, which is pretty well kept. He guards it through the persevering faith that he gives to us. And so even though this glorious chain of salvation is ours now, it waits to be fully revealed in heaven, he says. So the best is yet to come, okay? As amazing as it is to be saved, as we would say it, it gets better and better and better. And Peter writes about it in, in his second letter that we'll look at later this year. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So you wonder, what is our inheritance? How much is our inheritance? Everything. Everything is our inheritance. We're gonna inherit the entire new earth and the new heavens. It's gonna be ours in Christ. You're gonna get it all. It's gonna be yours to delight in. And of course, what we know from last week is that what makes the new heavens and the new earth so awesome is that God is there and we will be with him. We will get God as our inheritance. So Peter gets the wonder of your and my salvation that God brings to us. But I want you to remember now that what he writes next is written by someone who has suffered for Christ. Um, Back in the book of Acts, the early part of Acts focuses a lot on Peter's ministry. In Acts chapter five, it says, when they had called in the apostles, the religious leaders beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Peter was amongst those who were beaten um, there in Acts chapter five. You flip a couple pages over and it says, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter had suffered greatly in following Jesus. Keep that in mind as you read what he says next in verse six. In this, in this salvation he's talking about, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You know, in, in an interview with a magazine uh, recently, singer and poet Bob Dylan mostly poet, a little bit of singer, um, talked about his new music, Life on the Road and, and True Happiness. And towards the end of the interview, Dylan said, okay, a lot of people say there's no happiness in this life. Certainly there's no permanent happiness. I'm not exactly sure what happiness even means, to tell you the truth. I don't know if personally I could define it. And the interviewer asks him if he has ever touched and held happiness. And Dylan says, we all do at certain points, but it's like water. It slips through your hands. As long as there's suffering, you can only be so happy. How can a person be happy if he has misfortune? 
And I want to say, Bob, Bob, read 1 Peter because Peter is answering exactly that question. Is there a joy that transcends suffering? And Peter says, oh, yes. Yes, there is. There is that kind of joy. This salvation he's writing about is such a joy, he says, that even our assortment of trials cannot rob us of it. He's saying it is worth it to go through these trials because our salvation is worth it, is worth it, and it's secure. Tim Keller, uh, Pastor Tim Keller talks about how this works in one of his books. He says, um, imagine you have two women of the same age, same socioeconomic status, same educational level, even the same temperament. You hire both of them and you say to each, you are part of an assembly line. You, uh, I want you to put part A into slot B and then hand what you have assembled to someone else. I want you to do that over and over for eight hours a day. So you put them in identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, and ventilation. You give them the very same number of breaks in a day, all the same. It's very boring work. Their conditions are the same in every way except for one difference. You tell the first woman that at the end of the year you will pay her $30,000 for this work. And the second woman at the end of the year you will pay her $30 million. So after a couple weeks the first woman's gonna be saying, isn't this tedious? Isn't it driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second woman will say, no, this is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. What's, what's going on? He says, you have two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways. What makes the difference? He says, it is their expectation of the future. The point, he says, is not that we need a, all need to make a larger income. He says, the point is, it shows that we believe about our future. What we believe about our future completely controls how we are experiencing our present. We are irreducibly hope-based creatures, he says. And the problem, he goes on to say elsewhere, is that we are like a boy with a broken toy. He says, imagine an eight-year-old boy playing with a toy truck and then it breaks. He is beyond consolable and he cries out to his parents to fix it. Yet as he's crying, his father says to him, son, son, a distant relative you've never met has just died and left you $100 million. What will the child's reaction be? He will just cry louder until his truck is fixed. He does not have enough cognitive capacity to realize his true condition and be consoled by it. In the same way, Christians lack the spiritual capacity to realize all we have in Jesus. This is the reason Paul prays, and we would say Peter writes, that God would give Christians the spiritual ability to grasp the height, depth, breadth, and length of Christ's salvation. So it's interesting here. Um, he calls these trials necessary. They're, they're necessary trials. Why would trials be necessary? And, and that's what he talks about in the very next verse, in verse seven. He says, so that the genuine, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials, Peter will write elsewhere, they refine our faith. 
But here, even more than that, he says, they prove our faith to be genuine because true faith lasts. This is what he's talking about back in verse five. In verse five, he said, we who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God grants us faith that guards us for the fullness of salvation that will be revealed in the last time when Jesus comes for his people. Paul would write about it this way in Romans 8. He would say, um, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, this tested faith gives praise to Jesus on that day because he is the one who's kept us safe to the end. So he gets the praise because, as Paul wrote in the same passage, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so having been loved like that, it is our joy to please him, to serve him, to worship him. Um, Singer-songwriter James Taylor, both singer and songwriter, James Taylor, said, he's talking about one of his hit songs he wrote a while back called Mean Old Man. And he said, oh, this one was a big accomplishment because it's a sophisticated song and it's a throwback. Paul McCartney called me up and said that when he'd first heard it, he assumed it was Frank Lesser or Cole Cole Porter. I was, of course, absolutely thrilled. He said, at another point, Bob Dylan told me he'd been listening to one of my songs, Bob Dylan the poet, told me that he'd been listening to one of my songs and really thought it was great. And he said, that's enough for me. 10 critics can savage me, but I'll be fine as long as every once in a while, someone like Bob Dylan or Paul McCartney says, keep going, kid. So in far, far, far greater fashion, when we hear Jesus' own words, Well done, well done, good and faithful servant. We'll be fine, even if we have 10,000 critics savage us, we'll be fine. Because he says, in verse eight, Peter continues, though you have not seen him, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So even though the people reading his letter, like us, have not seen Jesus, those who have received his gift of this amazing salvation are marked by three things. We love him, we believe in him, and we rejoice in him. Because of the loving rescue that he carried out on our behalf, the more we grasp how great our salvation is, the more we love, trust, and rejoice in Jesus, even when we suffer for it. And as Peter's gonna warn us later in this letter, you've already seen it, we're going to suffer. So our suffering must not, in fact, it will not rob us of our love, faith, and joy in Jesus because our salvation in Christ is so gonna be worth it. It's so more than worth it. Uh, Bob Goff is a writer, and ever since he was a kid, he had a dream to sail across the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii. So when he grew up, Bob and four of his buddies entered the Trans-Pac race, the Trans-Pacific 
race, a semi-annual sailboat race from Los Angeles to Hawaii. Bob had limited sailing skills, and so he and his friends uh, loaded that, loaded into their 35-foot sailboat with canned chili and bottled water, and they set sail from Los Angeles for Hawaii as part of this race. Um, but for Bob and his friends, the most moving part of the journey was the arrival at the finishing line. Bob writes about it like this. He said, there's a tradition in the Transpac race no matter when you finish the race, even if it's two in the morning, when you pull into the Alamona Marina in Oahu, there's a guy who announces the name of the boat and every crew member who made the trip. It's the same guy. He's been announcing each boat's arrival at the end of every Transpac race for decades. So just, he says, when we came to the end of our supplies, I guess they ran out of chili, he said, we sailed across the finish line just off Diamond Head and into the marina. It was a few hours before dawn. It had been 16 days since we set out from Los Angeles in our little boat, knowing very little about navigation. Suddenly, the silence was broken by a booming voice over a loudspeaker announcing the name of our tiny boat. And then he started announcing the names of our ragtag crew like he was introducing heads of state. One by one, he announced all our names with obvious pride in his voice, and it became a really emotional moment for each of us on board. When he came to my name, he didn't talk about how few navi navigational skills I had or the zigzag course I'd led us in to get there. He didn't tell everyone I didn't even know which way north was or all about my other mess-ups. Instead, he just welcomed me in from the adventure like a proud father would. And when he was done, there was a pause, and then in a sincere voice, his last words to the entire crew were these, friends, it's been a long trip. Welcome home. And because of the way he said it, he said, we all welled up, fought back tears. I wiped my eyes as I reflected in that moment about all the uncertainty that had come with the journey, all the sloppy sailing and how little I knew, but none of that mattered now because we had completed the race. And then he says, I've always thought that heaven might be kind of a similar experience. After we cross the finish line in our lives, I imagine it will be like floating into the Hawaiian marina when our names were announced one by one and at the end of our lives, after our many mistakes and mid-course corrections, our loving Heavenly Father will simply say, friends, it's been a long trip. Welcome home. Welcome home. Now Peter writes about this salvation and says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So Peter says, the prophets of old before Christ, carefully sought for Christ, trying to discern who he would be and when he would come. And it was revealed to them that the grace that is Christ would not come in their day. No, they were serving us. Scott McKnight says that Peter contends that this salvation which the Asian Christians have enjoyed and for which they earnestly hope is the very salvation that the ancient prophets were seeking in all its details but never found. 
Peter's ultimate point is to demonstrate the privilege of enjoying salvation in his era, the privilege of living in the AD rather than the BC era. And so as those who live on this side of his coming, we can see clearly that the prophet's predictions have been shown to be fulfilled in none other than Jesus himself. And Jesus expressed the privilege of those who live after he came this way when he said to his disciples, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so we are privileged above the prophets and even above the angels, he says, who long to see through our eyes to experience what we experience. Professor Tom Schreiner says, Old Testament prophets saw it from afar and angels marvel when gazing upon what God has done in Christ but Peter's readers actually experience it. So Peter is laying down this stunning portrait of our salvation as the foundation for everything he's about to ask of us. Again, Scott McKnight says that Peter will proceed to talk in his his letter about ethics and lifestyle, but before he does so, he must make clear the foundation That foundation is the salvation of God and it's only on this foundation that Peter constructs the life of the church. Before he'll ask anything of us, Peter holds up our salvation and says, isn't it awesome? Look, Look back through it with me. Our salvation is the work of the whole trinity, the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, the shedding of the Son's own life's blood. It's an expression of God's mercy. We are born again to a living hope through Jesus' own resurrection. It brings to us an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that's kept in heaven for us as our faith is being guarded by God's own mighty power. It's greater than our many trials. It's more precious than gold. It's why we love him and believe in him and rejoice in him. It's the very salvation of our souls. The prophets pointed us to it. It was preached to us as good news by those who were sent by the Holy Spirit and angels long to see it from our perspective. And so whatever it costs to follow Jesus because of this salvation, it's gonna be worth it. It's so gonna be worth it. And so because of that, we love and we believe and we rejoice in Jesus. Does that describe your faith? You love Jesus, you believe in Jesus, you rejoice in Jesus, your faith is a joy, your salvation is a joy. You see, Not very much longer after Jerry the Jesus freak cornered me and asked me that question, um, I completed the process. I said yes to trusting Jesus to be my savior and my king my junior year of high school. And this morning it's really important to ask the question, are you saved? Is he your savior and king? Do you love him, believe him, rejoice in him? He can be that to you. We have a real simple way of explaining it. You've seen it before. It's called the three circles. And we were, we were, started, we were made to know God's love 
But as we went our own way, the Bible calls that sin and tried our own efforts, we ended up in a broken world with broken relationships and broken hearts. And try as we might to find our way back to God, whether it's through success or education or even good religious activities, we ended up moving almost farther away than God than closer. And God, because he is a God who loves us, made a way for us through prayer and repentance from our our wrong pursuits to come back into a relationship with God through Jesus who came and died on the cross for our sins so that we could go back into a relationship with God and know his love. That's, That's the good news. That's how salvation comes to a person. And this morning, that can be yours simply by acknowledging that you're a sinner and you need it desperately and you wanna trust in Jesus' good work on the cross on your behalf. It's that, it's really that simple. You know, I mentioned before, it's interesting, there are no commands in this section. There's nothing to go do except just to hold up that salvation and say, isn't this awesome? Isn't this an amazing gift that God has given the Trinity work together to bring to you and to me? Um, And our worship team's gonna come. They're gonna lead us in our closing prayer, uh, which is... um, about our living hope. It's a declaration of our living hope together. And so I'm gonna invite you as they get ready, stand with me. Let's make this our prayer, our declaration, our song of praise for our living hope.